Hello and welcome to episode 152 of NCP. I'm your host David, and with me are sort of some of the crew. Luke! Wait, hang on, what? <laughs> I'm first? You are, I'm first! You're first! Yay! <laughs> we're missing, we're missing uh, Richard. Richard was unable to attend. Uh, Wait, he just couldn't be bothered to show up? Couldn't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> and Crystal! Hello! Uh, I've been mean, he's actually ill. Yeah, he's so get well, get well, Richard. He's not, he's not well. But uh, to replace Richard, <laughs> and more importantly, we have a very special guest, Dr. Travis Langley. Dr. Langley, it's a, it's a real honour to have you on. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, no problem at all. Uh, it's, uh, so, Dr. Langley, um, would you mind just, uh, telling uh, the audience a little bit about yourself? I am a professor of psychology at Henderson State University in Arkansas in the U.S. I am the author of the book Batman in Psychology, A Dark and Stormy Night, and the editor and lead writer for a new series of books, uh, starting with The Walking Dead Psychology, Psych of the Living Dead, which is out this summer, and then in the fall we've got Star Wars Psychology, Dark Side of the Mind, next year the topics might rhyme with you know, Shame of Bones and <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> Ooh, Star Trek! I like that. Who's your Who's your favorite captain? Uh, whichever one I'm watching at the moment. Usually, <laughs> good answer. <laughs> I like it. Very diplomatic. Uh, but uh, I mean, it's, it, not only have you, uh, are you doing those books uh, in Batman and Psychology, which I've actually got in my hand right now, but also, you're also a undefeated champion on Wheel of Fortune. I like that little tidbit. Oh, really? That's right. That was when I was in graduate school. Uh, yeah, at, uh, and, and it was exactly the right point in our lives for that, too, because we, we needed money, we needed a new car, I was married in graduate school with two small children, and, and we got everything we needed. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, but also, I mean, you also be, you've been a child abuse investigator, courtroom expert, yeah. um, and uh, you're on Twitter uh, quite a lot as superherologist, um, and uh, you also attend just about every con like every major con I mean, you just you just attended san diego comic-con my calendar ends and begins with san diego comic-con yeah. there are plenty of other good conventions I, I i love so many wizard world is really nice to me uh it's so from new york comic-con i go to just to, to see people that i don't see at other times in fact the new book series happened because of new york comic-con and they're little ones like this one in a small town in conway arkansas called comic conway and, and and that was just a delightful one i love that is that there are so many of these you know teaching at a university in southern arkansas i i don't get to have a lot of the conversations i get to have at these conventions right have you had some really really out there questions at these conventions Oh, I don't know. The questions don't tend to surprise me. One guy, uh, when I was uh, selling some copies of my book at a convention, you know, he looked at the title of my book, and the question he asked didn't even phase me because I get different versions of it, but it, it cracked up Danny Fingeroth, a comic book writer and editor. Uh, the guy just said, so is this about Batman and psychology? And it, and it just cracked Danny up because that's the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, well um, during our conversation, I'm going to have some questions, so let's see if uh, I can stump you on any of those. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how we go. Oh, if you really want to stump somebody, say, what's my middle name? Um, <laughs> there you go. You win. Yeah. <laughs> why, do I, why am I pitching a, a Monty Python the Holy Grail type moment when you say that, Dr. Langley? <laughs> One of the, I mean, one of the things I do want to point out is that I mean, you are a, um, a professor, and uh, one yeah. of the subjects is Batman. I just love that we live in, a, in an age where you can have a subject on Batman. It's brilliant. I know. <laughs> Every, I mean, the, the things I normally teach, like forensic psychology, psychology of crime, abnormal psychology, psychology of mental illness. Uh, but every spring I do a media-related class, and it varies: psychology and film, psychology and literature. One year it was Stanley Heroes, and twice it has been Batman. Wow. Next year I'll do uh, Psych of the Living Dead. Nice. Although, <laughs> although that title's a little misleading because we're mainly not looking at the living dead themselves, but living people yeah. you know, surviving and dealing with them. Well, you could do you could do the psychology of Bob, the one from Dawn of the Dead. Well, there, uh, there, 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 there's, there's one, one zombie, okay. and we can talk about the conditioning. Yep. And uh, you know, you notice it's like in Romero's movies, uh, the smarter zombies 
like uh, Bub in in uh, the the uh, uh, Day of the Dead, not Dawn yeah, of the Dead. Uh, Day of the uh, Dead, that's right. Yeah. Bub and Day of the Dead and Big Daddy in Land of Big the Daddy, Dead. Yeah. Even though they can be violent and murderous, those smarter ones don't try to eat people. Mm. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. just just sorry to interrupt, Doctor Lang. Just on um, the intelligence then of uh, of zombies and the Living Dead. What about say uh, something like Billy Connolly zombie in Fido? If you've seen that, where he is effectively a pet who is trained in in everyday house chores. He's actually you know taken out of the um, the post apocalyptic setting and put into a, a 1950s type um, environment. So yeah, it, that zombie is that zombie is trained, mm. uh, has has some character, has 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 signs of feelings, yeah. and so you know they're treating that a little differently, um, you know, from the others. They're, that's that's part of the popularity of zombies is that we can have these different takes on them over and over, depending on what story you're telling, on what point you're trying to make. Uh, like uh, Romero zombies. They get smarter. That was especially established in Land of the Dead that they can learn. Well, Day of the Dead and Land of the Dead, but especially Land of the Dead. It wasn't just Bub. Bub, Bub and Day of the Dead. Land of the Dead established that a lot of them can get smarter. Kirkman says that's a big difference between his zombies and Romero's. Romero's get smarter. Kirkman's, their brains just keep rotting. Yeah. And it, it depends on the story they're telling. With Kirkman's, there's absolutely no person there. And you know, no individuality to them. They're a bunch of reflexes. In fact, in our, our Walking Dead Psychology book, the one chapter that really is about uh, the zombies themselves, uh, Paul Zare, a professor from Canada, he wrote a chapter looking at the neuroscience of zombies, looking at what part of the brains have to be active for them to do these things and for them to be driven to eat. But otherwise, they're all about the living people. Mm. Cool. Well, that's a perfect segue, actually, into uh, the way Luke had his questions. Segue into uh, the first question. So uh, let's let's hit it. Uh, slight change of topic, though. What is it about the superhero genre that appeals to people? What is it about fantastic characters and mythology? So you go throughout the entirety of human history. There has always been a fascination with people who do more. Yep. People who do the impossible, people who do the improbable, people who do something more than what we ourselves are doing. Mm. There's always been that. And really, part of that fascination probably ties into the things that drive the human race to create and invent. You know, once upon a time, lighting a fire was an incredible ability. People wished they could light a fire. And then the first person to light the fire, they would have seen larger than life themselves. There's always been that. It's it's part of wanting to be something more, the, the ability to imagine that there's something more. What if? What if is the you know, most powerful question in the history of the world. It can lead to some dangerous things. It can lead to some wonderful things. So, you know, of course you're going to wonder, you know, what if there could be, you know, incredible, fantastic heroes? It's not just superheroes. It's the same kind of interest in science fiction heroes of many different kinds. Mm. You know, with superheroes in particular, we get into, you know, in our own world, moving away from a science fiction world, but into the world that we're in. What if we had fantastic heroes? You know, people want somebody to be heroic, and sometimes it's very hard to imagine how even the most conscientious of heroes can make things happen, can fix a bad situation. And then you wonder, well, what if there were someone who could leap up to the top of that tall building, yeah. or someone who could stop that train? Yeah, As in, it is a, it's a, a, a large fascination for uh, superheroes in the real world. Like, what if superheroes were real? Sort of type stories mm-hmm. at, the, at the moment, which I, I which actually cut some of my favorites. Um, That's the same original question. Yeah. Know, Superman originally was set in a real world. Yeah. A, a fictional name for the city, originally Star City, then Metropolis, but it, it was the real world. It was th- those first stories. The superheroes weren't teaming up. They weren't a part of a big, fantastic world yet until they started blending uh, into, into the same world. Initially, every single one of them was asking that same question. So it's not exactly a new question where you start seeing things like kick-ass and other super and other stories that are looking, hey, what if these were in our world? It's the original question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, originally he was beating up you know, wife beaters and mm. mafia yeah, bosses. Yeah, that's the and first thing. That's all, actually the second thing he did. The first thing he did was uh, prove somebody innocent on page one, and then uh, yeah, and then the newspaper gets this story about hey, there's a guy beating up his wife across town. 
Clark, the journalist, will go check it out, and Superman slams the guy into a wall. <laughs> Yay! That's what you want from your um, your good-natured heroes, beating people up, granted, uh, under circumstances which... He deserved know, it. Yeah. Um, not long, just to take that a step back, um, and to take it out of superheroes, just for, just for a moment, could you then say that... As a culture and as a race, we needed to create stories in in order to help keep us going um, as a species. In terms of in, in, not just in terms of creation myths, but in terms of having something to help inspire us look beyond the horizon. Yeah, they they well, they help us look within the horizon too. You know, not just beyond the horizon, but to gain a perspective and understanding of the world right around us as well. You know, when you recount what you did at breakfast, you're telling a story. You're not telling literally every single detail of what happened. You're choosing what happened. It's a fact-based story, but it's still a story. Hmm. You know, we we have always told stories as part of communicating, of sharing ideas and events. The things that have happened, the things that did not happen, the things that could happen. You know, you're trying to figure out who broke the cookie jar. You imagine possible stories of who broke that cookie jar. Cool. That's and, awesome. And now I've got a murder mystery hanging in my head around who actually broke yeah. the cookie who jar. Who broke so, that cookie jar? Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I've got uh, the children's rhyme stuck in my head. <laughs> uh, okay, well, so, talking about, so talking about story and stuff like that, which moves on to our next question. Mm. See, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. Mm. Uh, so, um, the next question You've is... have done this before. Is, uh, in your opinion, is there a perfect superhero origin story, and what is it? Uh, once upon a time, a kid and his parents were walking through a street in the middle of the night. A mugger kills the parents. The kid grows up to dress like a bat. That is it. <laughs> and you'll get no argument from me um, because Batman's my favorite. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It is the perfect origin story because it, it captures everything. Like Superman's story, you know, it originally it's like it's it's spun out over two pages, uh, and you could even a one page version. And you see, he he grows up to Earth, but you don't know why he's doing the things he's doing. No. Why is Superman doing the right thing? Because he's graced to be a good person. Batman, that simple page and a half origin. You not only know what he did to become who he is, but you understand why he's doing the things he's doing. So that captures everything very quick and to the point. And they tapped into our most primal fears. You know, we all learn that our parents can and will die. Mm. But it's, it's, it's also the emotional response and wanting to overcome um, that tragedy. Would you, could you also say that as well? It's you know seeing someone attempting to, to do that? Yeah. Yeah, that is that is some of the amazing things in Batman's origin. It gets us to imagine what if, uh, and and you can sympathize with the characters. You have empathy for them. You see the panel of the boy crying, and 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 recognizing that they're dead, uh, and you know what you know what he's feeling. You don't, you may not have been through it yourself, but you 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 know what those feelings are. You know, with Superman's origin, th- th- there's not emotion in in that for the most part. It's it's rather straightforward. He goes to Earth. He grows up to do the right thing. Uh, with well, there's some a little bit of emotion from the parents trying to rocket him off to Earth in the slightly longer version. Mm. But with with Batman, there's feeling, human emotion. You understand the different kinds of things that somebody could think. What would somebody do? We ask questions. What would somebody do in that situation? It just inspires so many different kinds of thoughts. What about uh, Spidey and his great power? It's it's a very strong origin, but it's a, it's a little more complicated. That's part of what makes Batman so perfect yeah. is that it's quick and to the point. Yeah. Spider-Man, it takes the extra steps, and it, it is strong. Stan and uh, Steve Ditko, they manage to add a new layer to the superhero origin. You know, you'd had people for years, so, okay, Batman had the perfect origin, everybody knew it, and people trying to play, well, well what this, what's this hero's origin? Uh, he lands on an island and has to fend for himself. Uh, what's this guy's origin? He gets a magic ring. Uh, but with <laughs> Spider-Man, uh, Stan one-upped Batman's origin by not just having it be that he sur- that there's this tragic thing that happens to a family member, but made it very personal and gave Spider-Man a reason to feel guilt about it, which had not been there before. So it is a it is a wonderful wonderful origin. It's it's has many aspects that are perfect, but in terms of overall, you can't beat Batman for being quick and to the point and powerful. 
Yep, spot mm. on. Awesome. Yep. Have you seen the new uh, Batman vs Superman trailers? I have seen the trailers. Yeah. What 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 are your thoughts? We still don't know what the story is, except Superman and Batman are going to have a fight. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, we know the setup, but it's like I, you know, you're looking. It's like it's 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 got this darkness, and it's it's so serious, and all. It's like is everybody supposed to be Batman serious on that world? <laughs> and so he raises these questions, but without an idea of what the story is beyond these guys are having a fight, hard to judge. So I'm just trying to be open minded. It's like it is whatever it is. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'm trying to be open-minded, you know, unlike 90% of the internet. <laughs> You've met the internet. <laughs> I have. I have. We've, uh, we bumped into, into each other in a dark alley once. and uh, didn't, def- It didn't end well. It didn't end well. <laughs> the internet shot some people you really like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Decency and honesty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Let's move on. <laughs> so, uh, well, that's, you know, once again, so to the next question. Um, do you believe that there is a streak of misogyny in nerd culture? If if so, why? Well, there's misogyny throughout the world. Yes. You know, there in, in people in groups all over the world. You're going to find varying degrees. And so you go, it's like, well, what's particular about nerd culture? What do we mean by nerd culture? Uh, you get some aspects of it that are stereotypically male-dominated and... But why in particular, why are people fighting on this one so much about the misogyny and that? Mm. There are a whole lot of, uh, so many women, you know, interested in nerdy topics as well. And some of what you're seeing is some frustrated guys who they don't know how to play with the girls, so they're making trouble for them, you know, where they, they want it to be their boys club. Uh, I'll see some of them criticize somebody else, call them a beta. And it, it's the first time I ever saw a friend of mine get called that. Neither one of us knew what it meant, but it occurred to me, oh, oh, they're saying you're not an alpha male. That's why they're criticizing you for being a beta, for sticking up for women. As if the guys who called anybody a beta were themselves alpha. Yeah. <laughs> like him. Um, so, but uh, there, there's these insecurities there's the anonymity of the internet which is all over the place obviously yeah. you know there you can have trolls everywhere on any topic yeah. the the trolls are going to be particularly excited about something people are passionate about and people are going to have the most trouble ignoring the trolls on the things they're passionate about and to a lot of people part of what the word geek means these days is that passion that yeah. thing that you love, that thing that is meaningful and exciting to you, and therefore it is hardest for you to ignore the trolls about the thing that is meaningful to you, the thing that excites you. And it's going to hurt the most mm. when this person is making trouble about this thing that you care about. And so we get the women being picked on by the guys. I We don't know that there's necessarily greater misogyny. We just see it flaring up vocally where these guys are reinforcing each other. And it is that passion on every side. The passion somebody else will be you know, throwing into sports and arguing, uh, fighting over what town somebody is from because of the sports that they love. Mm. When you know, here it, it gets to be a, gen, a gender fight. Yeah. Um, does that also come down to a sense of um, entitlement as well? You know, getting back to the stereotypical view of geeks, which were we, we were all in a dark, in a locked room in our mother's basements, playing Dungeons and Dragons, surrounded by our um, bo- long boxes of comics, and suddenly feeling that. And I'm not I'm not justifying any of this when no. I say this, but no, you're asking about how they feel. Yeah, ask, is it suddenly the, that sense of entitlement feeling threatened? Hmm. Yeah, that, the sense of entitlement is an interesting issue because we, we, you know, we see this sense of entitlement grow over recent decades in people in general. Yeah. Um, you know, like, you know, I as a professor have students you know, who make greater and greater assumptions about the professor being there to serve them. It's like, you know what, you're responsible for your education. Yeah. Uh, you know, students will ask things I never would have thought to ask before. And some of that will just relate to the age of communication, the instant feedback, you know, People, people there staring into their phones, texting, tweeting, immediate feedback, and, and losing some social cues, losing some ability to judge social cues or realize, you know, you can spell things correctly. Um, <laughs> I realize I veered off of there a little bit. That's a good point. There's no reason not to spell issue. right. It's, some of it's not as much about feeling entitled. 
but wanting to feel entitled. Mm. They may that, that that creates the greater secure insecurity. Mm. You know, if you the people who genuinely feel entitled, they're not as insecure as the people who who want to be entitled. They want to have it. You know, the, the, that, that bit on calling somebody else a beta, that reflects that as well. You know, they should know darn well they're not alphas, but they feel like <laughs> they could be. They feel like they ought to be, certainly over that other person, instead of the gamma or zeta or omega or whatever they are. Um, it is about reflecting their, their status. You know, it is so easy to try to tear somebody else down or ruin somebody else's mood. Yeah. Any fool has the ability to hurt other people's feelings. We want to feel power. We want to feel influence. It's if we are born needing to affect the people around us. We have a need to get somebody to respond to our cries to meet our needs. You know, we have a need to have have some kind of influence in this world, some kind of power, even over our own lives. And these individuals who are stirring these things up. Some of them are doing it just to feel that sense of power. They accomplish something by making somebody else hurt. Yep. Is it, is it like back in the 80s when we were kids, being a nerd meant you were outcast? And then nowadays it's, it's kind yeah. of a, a cool thing, thanks to shows like The Big Bang Theory and whatnot. Um, is it now that, that now that they feel like they're the cool people, they've suddenly turned into the jocks that were picking on them when they were kids, and, and they don't want to lose that coolness, and they don't want anybody else getting in the way of that? Well, you got a couple of different things going on there. I mean, there is displacement. You've been picked on. It's easy to have the impulse to pick on somebody else, to, to you know displace those feelings and take it out on someone else. Uh, there's also some resentment. Uh, uh, like you're talking about the generational thing. Like when I was a kid, Fonzie taught everybody that a nerd was the worst thing to be. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, I, could, I still have some issues with Fonzie over that. <laughs> uh, I have walked past Henry Winkler several times. I've never, I've never said anything like that because yeah, he is a big nerd. Actually, he's a short nerd. He's a short nerd, but he is, he is quite a nerd. And yeah, if you ever watch Fonzie's boot, you realize, man, those boots are really. Elevating that guy, but, um, <laughs> but no, there is. So having been picked on and ostracized, you know, when some of these individuals is, oh, 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 we th we think this stuff that you're into is cool, but there's this readiness to feel like, oh, now the cool kids are taking our table over too. Yeah. yeah. And and when you hear some of these people who that they want some of the geeky stuff, but still have some disdain. For some of the nerdy elements, oh, well, I would never read a comic book. Yeah. I love these movies, but those comic books are stupid. They don't know the comic books. And if, if you, if you, I'm not putting down everybody who doesn't care for comic books. I'm using that as an example of the kind of thing. Yeah. There was a website a couple of years ago uh, that wanted me and some of my friends to write and contribute, and they were very marketed toward geek audience. And we decided very quickly that, no, they, they, they have actual disdain for geekiness and yeah. it's like well forget that we're not doing anything with them it's fair enough my favorites are the uh are the fantasy football league players so you get so you get these you know these, yeah! these cool jock type guys doing what is essentially dungeons and dragons, dragons. but with football players it's it's pretty funny that's right nerds <laughs> invented that stuff and, and they'll get into it yeah you go it's like how 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 it's like well this is real it's like no it's not even if it's about real teams what you're doing is not real so why put down somebody else's fun that's what really aggravates me yeah. uh, the ones who will go and they'll they'll ruin somebody else's fun yeah. It's like, why criticize, uh, if, if this person's way of having fun is not hurting anybody else, why criticize them? Why pick on them when they're, because they're finding a way to have fun when you're not? Well, some of the, some <laughs> of the jerks are having fun. Yeah. Uh, and some of it's at the expense of somebody else. A couple years, uh, the first time I ever went to Comic-Con, 2007, uh, I decided kind of late to go, so I ended up staying at a hostel, because that was about the only place I could find to stay. I overheard guys in the next room mocking 
those those Comic Con nerds, you know, and, and laughing like there was uh, just something stupid about them going around dressed. It's like these people are having fun. You have this cynical, unpleasant view of life, and of course later on, oh, like three in the morning, one of them went banging on my door um, and and snickering as oh oh let me in the bathroom like he's like oh he's interrupting my sleep, playing like he's too drunk to know that's the bathroom. Well, um, but I, I I got him. I had a little three dollar portable alarm clock. Now, this is obviously somebody who can appreciate the humor in disturbing someone's sleep. So, you now I, I checked out at 7 a.m. and uh, set that little $3 alarm at the door that was between my room and theirs. So it went off, and they had to get up at 7.15 and bang on the door and go downstairs to get help, to get that alarm turned off. And, uh, you know, again, they obviously appreciate the humor in messing with somebody's sleep. I just wish I'd had a second. I wish I'd had a second alarm to make it go off a little later. <laughs> well, I mean, so I've never told that story in an interview before. <laughs> but it was so nice to hear. That's what we got. You heard it here first. Exclusive. Yeah, revenge, revenge of the nerds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, going back to the original part, part of the question, which was uh, misogyny and, and sort of women in, in nerdism. Um, yeah. it's, it's, we're, I mean, we're very strictly you know pro women in 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 uh, nerd culture is uh, you damn well better be <laughs> that's right because my wife's sitting there sitting right next to me um but uh one of the things about uh one of the things about uh, sort of you know anti-women in in nerd culture is that whole well, you don't know you, you don't know the character all that well and and you know it's like you're just you're just dressing up like them because they're sexy and you know all that sort of stuff which i just find ridiculous you know, um, even if even if some people are dressing up as the character because it's sexy, so what? They're mm. having fun. Mm. Who cares? That's it. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to know everything about Harley to dress up as Harley. Mm. You know, what I mean? it's like it's okay. it's it's ridiculous. It just drives me mad. Um, but anyway, that brings me. That's the, the that was the my very. And who's to say that person thing. doesn't? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's exactly. I mean, you that, never know that, anybody's Just because you're a girl doesn't mean you haven't been reading comics as soon as you could read. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, playing video games and you know it's all sorts of stuff. It's like you know the very first video game a console I ever played one was an Atari twenty six hundred and it was bought by the lady who lived next door for herself, not for her children. But my, my first video game was Pong. Awesome. Yeah, same. Mine was Pong. <laughs> That's the first video game I played was Pong. Awesome. Um, so the uh, so the next question is uh, so talking about Harley who I um, you know very subtly inserted into the conversation before. Um, why? Why do you think Harley Quinn is such a popular character amongst women? That one's tricky, because you see this woman who is so seriously abused by the Joker, and, and so many other things, and, and, and it gets a little hard to think. It's like, why in the world is that character popular? And, and there are people who are very bothered by Harley. It's not like she's popular with everybody. There are plenty of people who are, are, are disturbed by the abusive relationship and how she just keeps going back to the guy. Of course, then there are people who relate to the character because of that. But some of the other things that are going on with Harley, Harley is fun. Yeah. And comic book female characters don't tend to be written to be fun. Yeah. It's where you, they don't know how to give them a sense of humor uh, or you know make them amusing. If you're amusing, oh, no, you're mocking women if you're making them amusing. You know, you see this in situation comedies where you know the woman is she she's not the one cracking jokes while everybody else in the family is. You know, there's a lot of it. Writers are wary of how to let a, a woman be the fun one and and make jokes or amusing. And and Harley, we see Harley's better qualities. Harley, we also have a lot of hope for her because and we see you know, when she's a bit of a social chameleon you know, she, as I, I mentioned in the book you know she her personality as she expresses it adapts to the people around her you know when she hangs out with heroes she more she is more heroic when she hangs out with villains she's more villainous when she hangs out with the joker she's more murderous and those better moments when she is more heroic we see that she can be a better person and that that makes us have have some hope for her too hmm. she she is smart she doesn't always express it but, you know, she was able to become a psychiatrist, depending on which version of it you have. There was one version of her origin that in, in indicated that she kind of slept her way to her degree. But usually, she's written as someone who was smart enough to get through college, earn her medical degree, and, you know, and then she falls for the bad boy. And a lot of people can understand falling for the wrong person. Yeah, but the Joker, though. 
He's not, I know. He's not just you know, a bad boy. boy. We're not talking about the leader of the gang, the leader of the pack here. Just... If you've got a predilection for bad boys, he's the ultimate bad boy. He's, he's the ultimate bad boy. Why settle for just any little bad boy? It's like, um, you know, forget the abusive redneck. We're going for the Joker. <laughs> She's, is, she, is she a bit like those ladies that like to, they, they write to the men in prison and then marry them? That's spot on. There's, there's, yeah, you can definitely see some of that. I mean, she, she, she goes into prison. She's fascinated with the criminal type, mm. um, but you know, she falls for that particular one. And as her origin is usually depicted, the Joker is messing with her head. You know, he's he's taking charge of the conversation. You know, manipulating her very much, in one way or another. I mean, I don't want, I don't want to throw any labels or anything like that. But hopefully, you can sort of uh, sort of amend on it a bit. But is Harley. I mean, the Joker is quite often d- described as insane, mm. or psychotic, right. whatever the case may be. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, I have read your book, and I do, I do see sort of your arguments sort of around around the Joker himself. But is Harley also insane? Yeah, with Harley, the, as as she's usually written, she knows what she's doing. There are a few stories, like there's one where she uh, had had sex with Deadshot, thinking he was the Joker. So that shows a distorted view. And then, you know, she was initiating this. Deadshot was actually kind of resisting. Uh, but right. uh, uh, she, she initiated this. And so it's like, okay, yeah, if you can't, if, you, if you're hallucinating and delusional and think that other person is somebody else, that's insane. But in terms of the rightness of wrongness of her actions, a person could be psychotic, yeah. But also insane. That's a very tricky thing for me to get across to people. Mm. You know, you can if you're psychotic, you're out of touch with reality. Like you're hallucinating, you have delusions. Insane usually involves being psychotic, but it, it's a different word. I mean, it's a legal term, and as it's defined, you know, in most of the world, it's referred. To, it refers to being unable to appreciate the rightness or wrongness of your actions due to a severe mental defect, such as psychosis. So, you know, if you kill your neighbor because you have this delusion that the neighbor is, you know, the leader of a gang that's out to kill you, but if you were an antipsychotic, you would not think that way and you would recognize the wrongness of it. Okay, yeah, you only did that action because of your severely distorted mental state. You say, okay, if in real life, if, if your friend tells you to go kill your neighbor and you know it's wrong, you shouldn't do it, and you need better friends, <laughs> all right, that's, that's the normal behavior. <laughs> if a hallucinatory elephant tells you to go kill your neighbor and you still know it's wrong, you shouldn't do it, and you need better elephants, then you are sane. You're psychotic for talking to the hallucinatory elephant – but you are still sane because of being able to recognize the real-world rightness and wrongness of your actions. So with the Joker, does the Joker know he's hurting you? Yeah, that's what's fun about it for him. Yeah. Does he know people consider this to be wrong? Yes, he does. Yeah. Does he have a bizarre way of thinking? Absolutely. Um, and you know, he has trouble understanding why he can't copyright fish in one story and some <laughs> things like that. But... When it comes to the real criteria for insanity, uh, the Joker knows it's wrong. He, he would not fit what we normally refer to as, as legally insane. Although I do have my own theory about why the Joker might be found uh, legally insane in that world. Of course, you could always – maybe their world has different criteria for insanity. Uh, okay, but I, I think that's a little bit of a weak argument. I actually think in terms of real people, you know, who wants to be the judge – that sends the Joker to prison? Yeah. Who wants to be the prosecutor that sends the Joker to prison or the jury that, that has to listen to any of that? You want to get off the Joker's radar as fast as you can so you don't get blown up like the judge in the Dark Knight. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, 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 okay, legally insane, get him out of my court. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so is Harley, does that mean that Harley is also insane because she's she thinks she's in love with someone who is also psychotic? Well... Okay, she shows. She, sometimes she's written where she shows some signs of psychosis, yeah. uh, some some delusional type thinking, but she still understands what her actions are and how they affect other people, yeah. and she she still has the ability to know right from wrong. So she would also seem to be legally sane. Yeah, mm. that, that that seems to be the present way that they 
um, portray Harley in the Harley, the current Harley yeah, the current, series. Um, the Amanda Connor series, yeah. yeah. Where she's um, meant to be uh, trying to actually lead a, a quote-unquote normal life. Um, <laughs> she, she creates the gang of people that... But, I mean, the gang of people are meant to help people. I mean, yeah, that's the whole thing. She's help. actually trying to create her own vigilante force to yeah. <laughs> um, help enforce the law. And so that, I guess that's what it is. You know, it depends. really depends on who's writing her and what their goal for Harley is. But she's still psychotic because she's talking to a dead squirrel. Yes, that is true. Yeah, a conversation <laughs> with a dead squirrel, that's psychotic. Yeah. Now, now if she... If she committed a crime because the dead squirrel told her to and convinced her that it was the right thing to do, okay, you might be going into insane territory. But when she does her crimes, it's not because of conversations with the dead squirrel. Right. And she does it. She actually quite often abuses the dead squirrel for giving her the wrong... That's your beaver, I think. It's a beaver, yeah. I, just, I find Harley just a fascinating character. and Harley as a character herself, but also just the fact that there's so many women seem to connect to her in some way. It's... Yeah. Well, so part, of the be- the part of the beauty with these characters, the Joker and Harley, is that they are very adaptable to a lot of different situations in different ways and for different reasons. And, and we can accept this variety of behavior from Harley as opposed to someone like Poison Ivy who has a narrower range of behavior. And if somebody writes a really bizarre Poison Ivy story, you go, it's like, well, that's just out of character. That's bad writing. Hmm. Harley is very flexible. So you can tell so many different stories with her. Likewise with the Joker. You can have the Joker where he's not killing anybody. You could go a long time without him killing anybody and still accept that that was the Joker. That's just what was funny to him at that particular point in time. Hmm. Hmm. Totally. All right, well, um, so the Joker and Harley love uh, brings me to my next question. Um, is, I know this is, this is a little bit out there, but is the Joker in love with Batman? I know he's obsessed, but is he actually in love? Now, a, a couple of writers take the view that he is, mm. but uh, someone as severely psychopathic as the Joker, as sadistic as the Joker, does not seem to be capable of love in any form. Hmm. I know uh, Frank Miller in an interview was commenting about this, about how uh, Alan Moore's Joker might, but Miller's would not. Right. We don't know what goes on inside the Joker's head. Yeah. We just don't. So there is no definitive answer on these things. And it's best that way. A character like the Riddler or the Penguin, you can form some definitive answers on some things about what goes on in their heads because you you do see some true aspects of them as people. With the Joker, you don't ever know when you're seeing the true aspect. You know, it might be even when he's acting like he's uh, amused, he could be putting on an act then too. And, and that's what makes him a scary force of chaos in these stories, and he always has been, because we've never understood him. Batman is baffled by this character. That, even beyond the Joker's you know, cleverness and his uh, creativity, the, Batman's inability to anticipate the Joker, you know, in... Um, the death of the family by Scott Snyder. You know, Batman was commenting about how it's like, you know, with the Riddler, he can anticipate a lot of things with him. He's never been able to anticipate the Joker. Likewise, we, the reader, should not be able to anticipate the Joker. We should not know what he's doing. We should not know what's going on inside his head. He does not seem to be capable of love. Anything we know about real-world sadists, real-world killers, those who have done the most abominable things don't show the capacity to love someone. Mm. So it's an, an empathy thing. Mm. And it's interesting you bring up Snyder because in Endgame, it's actually kind of hinted at that the Joker actually does, ha- actually yeah. is in love with um, with Batman. Hence my question. Yeah. yeah, but again, that can always be the Joker's messing with Batman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, the way he acts in uh, the uh, graphic novel Arkham uh, Asylum. Although, you, you, you really have to view that one as more of a dream and not worry about quote quote reality with yeah. it yeah. Uh, but the, the Joker does some of these things like you're calling Batman darling and he does some of that in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns mm. but again it's like that could just be the Joker messing with Batman yeah so a very a very heterosexual Batman mm. sort of trying to yeah. I mean, I guess yeah, that scene let's, mess, let's mess with this manly man yeah. the Joker doesn't always do that he doesn't always indicate anything like that and that's just his and you know the Joker 
he could think he knows what love is. He might think he knows. Hmm. Uh, one of the things with the Joker, we see that, yeah, he can tap into people's worst side. He can he can bring out the worst in a lot of people. But he's not good at understanding people's better qualities. He's not good at developing a, a, a plot that involves a judgment regarding the better side of human nature. That's why in the film The Dark Knight, it totally takes him by surprise that these two boats full of people do not blow each other up. Yeah. Batman Batman has enough faith in human nature that even though he's wary of individuals, he has enough faith that in people overall that those two boats full of frightened people will not blow each other up, and they prove Batman to be right. The, the Joker doesn't get that. Yeah. That's what's frustrating the Joker. It aggravates him, as, you know, in the, the graphic novel, The Killing Joke. It's like, why don't you just see what a sick joke it all is? Yeah. It, it, it frustrates him that other people see these better things when he does not. So I, I don't think he knows what love is. So sometimes he might think he knows. Yeah. I'm so glad. This is almost like it's rehearsed. I'm so glad yeah. you just mentioned The Killing Joke, because that's my next question. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I did an interview during Comic-Con and one guy said, I have a question about the killing joke. And before he said, asked the question, I said, Batman did not kill the Joker. Oh, man, that's a- <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the script. I've seen the yeah, script. I've, I've, also, I've, also, I've also read the script. It clearly doesn't kill him. Um, which, he also, which, yeah. if you look at that panel... Look at the position of Batman's arms and really think where they would fall on a, mm. a, a person if they were if if you could fill in the silhouette. Yeah. They're not near his neck. No, his th- hands are on the Joker's shoulders, maybe even yeah. his upper arms. Yeah, I think it's actually upper upper arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It um, looks more like his upper arms. That yeah. you, you you can't strangle someone through their upper arms. Not even bats could do that. <laughs> and to suggest the killing, it actually takes away, I think, from that overall scene. Well, that's, that's yeah. what I, I want to talk about that scene, right? So, yeah, so we've yeah. established that he doesn't kill him, right? It, yeah, it is an interesting scene for a yeah. lot of other reasons. Yeah. yeah, I mean, why why does he laugh at the joke? Or why why does he not just beat the crap out of him for doing what he just did? I mean, he just ruined Barbara and Jim's lives. Mm. So, it's, what what's the deal? I don't get it. Why does he seem it seem like he actually smiles at the end? Please explain it to me. I don't get it. <laughs> Well, okay, people can laugh for a lot of different reasons. They can laugh when they're exhausted. They're so yeah. exhausted that it kicks in this, this human reaction when you don't know what to do. Yeah. You can laugh in frustration. Uh, you, can, you can laugh at yourself. Batman has just charged in there to beat up the Joker. Yeah. He's been beating him. The Joker's not feeling the pain. Yep. And and he's been doing all of that. He's going by the book, as Gordon said, you know, followed by the book. We can't let the Joker be right. And Batman's been hurting him, and that's not having an effect on the Joker. And, you know, you guys, like, we don't exactly know why he's laughing. But in terms of, of general human reactions, it could be exhaustion. It could be you know, not knowing what in the world is going to happen. It's, it's gone right back to what Batman was trying to achieve at the beginning of figuring out a way to end this relentless trouble with the Joker. Yeah, and it's just, it also it plays into that final conversation where he, where he, he, he says, it's like, it's, I mean, he, says, he had that conversation at the start where he says, well, I, wanna, I want this to end without either of us killing each other. And then he gets that scene at the end where it looks like he's actually broken through for a brief mm-hmm. second, where Joker's, yeah. Joker actually considers it for a second. It's like, well... No, it's actually it's too late for that. The, yeah, the Joker does think about the question, or he wouldn't have said that about it being too late for it. Yeah, but you also because there's also it's been a while since I've read the Killing Joke, but at the start, doesn't Batman actually question the fact that you know for people for two people who constantly interact with each other, they're actually not friends, and that in a weird kind of a way, at the end, that they actually do have a, an almost friendly moment. Hmm. You know, it's the, it's the one friendly moment they actually share in their entire history together, both before and since. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, like rivals can genuinely hate each other and still have this comfort level with each other, in which, you know, there's a connection, whether you like it or not. You know, you can have a... You, 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 maybe you might have a brother who you, you genuinely hate through and through, and you still have that connection. And, yeah. and this, this, this whole killing joke is also about the connection between Batman and the Joker. He's starting off the beginning, you know, saying, it's like, our fates are tied together. We're going to end up killing each other if we don't find a way to alter this. And there at the end, you know, he's gone back through, 
he, he didn't accomplish. Some things are worse than they were before, and their fates are still tied together. You got you, you you even look at the the Killing Joke visually, and it it unfolds at the end in a reverse of how it starts. Yeah, you know yeah. the panels visually. The, you know the rain yeah. goes in reverse, and even some of the other things visually. When you get into the story, you know the the conversation Batman's having at the end with the Joker, you know has parallels to that conversation he's having with the fake Joker at the beginning, and 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 all through the the entire structure. You know there's there's at the beginning you know, the story progresses, and then at a certain point it starts to unfold in the reverse of the way the story went earlier. Yeah. I just want to throw out a disclaimer. He, did, he doesn't ruin Barbara's life. She does then become Oracle. So mm. anybody upset by that statement, I apologize. But the Oracle thing is later. I'm talking yeah. about within that story. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. Within that story, she has been uh, you know, shot, She's paralyzed. Her time as Batgirl has ended. Yeah. It's going to be a little while before she's Oracle. You know, the, the uh, Stranders, uh, they decide, hey, we need to do something cool with this character. And, but even that, when she, once she was Oracle, it was two years before Oracle's identity was revealed that it was her. She was in the story, in and of itself. Like, yeah. where we go talking about, did he kill the Joker or not? Well, the Joker was around later. Yeah, okay, but we're talking about within the reality of that story yeah. and how things seem to them within that. You know, he, uh, he has paralyzed Batgirl, ended her from any, having any chance of being Batgirl. Yeah. It's just, it's horrible, horrible stuff, but it's actually one of my favorite that man's story. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's dumb. Oh, it's cool. an amazingly well-constructed story. They're finally doing an animated version of it. Yeah, I'm interested to see how they translate it because mm. they're not going to have some of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, so we're, I've got one more major question. It's, uh, it's our sort of trademark question. But before we do that, I just want to sort of clean your palate. I'm going to throw some quick-fire questions at you, all right? Some nice and easy ones. Kittens. The answer is kittens. Kittens. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope not. Because What's your favorite breakfast? <laughs> cool. So, uh, the first first comic you ever bought with your own money? Oh, that would have been a, an an action comic. I can't tell you the number, but it had a monster flying into the window uh, in, who lived in the same building as Clark Kent and Superman flying out. Cool. I gotta look that up. up. That's awesome. Uh, you have uh, in your you know your comic your comic con appearances and, and panel appearances and stuff like that. You've met a whole hump a bunch of stars. Uh, Couple, have, yeah. Have you ever been starstruck? I feel like I should have been when I met Adam West, but um, I had talked to him on the phone, and you know he had called me a little earlier because his daughter set it up. I kind of felt it was, also, and, and it's the hectic it's a hectic situation. Adam has called me on the phone. Uh, after he failed to call me the first time he was going to call me, it's like Batman's not going to call me, and then, so I'm in the middle of noisy Comic Con trying to get to where um, I can hear him better, and I lose the call, and I'm just glaring at my phone. No, but Adam called back, and uh, you know he blamed his own crappy phone, and then I, I met him a few hours later, and tired from the heat. And uh, you know he's like, oh here, here, have some water. And he's he's, he's just a nice guy that makes you very comfortable very quickly. So it it, it seems like I should have been because I know the first two years I was at Comic Con, he would say, well, well, who do you really want to meet at these conventions? Well, I'd like to meet Batman's creators and Adams and Adam West, but Batman's creators are dead. Uh, but then you know my third Comic Con, I did a convention panel with him, yeah. and that 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 was pretty exciting. But by the t- but it's not like. I met him out of the blue. You know, I'd been working a couple of weeks toward that, and I don't know. It's like people are people. Yeah. Oh, well, there yeah. are some in, there are some individuals. There are some who I met. If I met them, I would be intimidated. I would be. I would probably be uncomfortable trying to strike up a conversation with Jack Nicholson. But yeah. then again, it would depend on what he was already doing or, or or conversing. You know, he is he's this level of star where his life is full of people wanting something from him. Yeah, and 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 that's what would be uh, uncomfortable to me is uh, you know so it would depend on the circumstances. Yeah, I, I had that experience with Michael Rooker. I got the chance to interview Michael Rooker, and it's the worst interview I've ever done because he just <laughs> he just absolutely annihilated me. <laughs> he he basically interviewed me. It was it was weird. Rooker Rooker is a lunatic. Um, at least he can't be. Um, my my daughter-in-law. That's his professional opinion. Michael Rooker, who plays Merle on The Walking Dead, for people who are like, "Who's that guy looking at?" Okay, uh, Rooker. My daughter-in-law moderated Norman and Norman Reedus and yeah. Michael Rooker uh, for a panel at Wizard World. Right. Uh, now she'd already had communication with Norman. He had judged a contest for her website, but she moderated them. And an audience member asked Norman and Michael to 
Im- imitate each other. So Michael gets up and putting on this artsy kind of beatnik <laughs> pretense as Norman's going, that's not how I act. And then Michael sits down and Norman's running around like a hyperactive lunatic. This yeah. is his Michael act. And he puts my daughter-in-law in a headlock and then just keeps running around. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, when, I, when I interviewed him, he had all, all female attendants because he was at a con, so he had all you know sort of the, the, the attendants that, you, that you sort of get uh-huh. order for you. So they were all female, and they were all in rapture. They were like they were just they just he could do no wrong. He was like a god. It was unbelievable. It was awesome, awesome stuff. All right, so final final question, right? So be prepared. It does sometimes stump people, but uh, so don't feel bad if you do. But uh, I'm sure you'll be good. It is our trademark question. If you were conducting this interview on yourself. What would be the one question that you would want asked? Uh, what did you have for breakfast? And the answer is kittens. <laughs> Nobody has ever asked me that in an interview question. That would be different. Okay, cool. All right. So what did you have for breakfast? Uh, I didn't have breakfast today. Oh, that's, that's the most important meal of the day, Joe. <laughs> All that build up for nothing. <laughs> it's funny to me. <laughs> Well, that's um, that's that's all I've got. I mean, do you have any questions for us? <laughs> okay, okay. What did you have for breakfast? Porridge, uh, a cup of tea, nothing. Oh, disgrace! <laughs> and coffee. Right. That's that, that's my breakfast. No, two nothings, porridge, and tea. There we go. That's um, the healthy start we all got to the day. <laughs> I had the only reason I had that is because I had to take my insulin. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't have had anything. Um, it's, Dr. Lenny, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, sir. Thank you very much. It's been, uh, I, I can't tell you, it's been a highlight. Mm. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, sir. You have, you have a good night. You too. Bye. 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 That was awesome. That was good. And there were so many. That was one of the comments where I thought, if this could go on for two more hours. Oh, I could have. Easily. I, I had other questions. I had to filter it down. I actually didn't think we'd get all those in there, mm. but I had so many other questions to go through and sort of, I mean, man, mm. we could just go on and on and on, you know what I mean? But, it's just, you know, we don't, we don't have the time. We'll have um, the links to Dr. Lenley's uh, website in the show notes and stuff like that. I, I implore you to check it out because he's got like a like a whole selection of uh, articles that he's written. And it just you know topics all over, just range all over the place. You know, far more than we had the time to cover here. Mm. Just uh, check it out. He's uh, he's a cool, cool dude, and uh, we'll we'll speak to him again. Let's finish up with coming soon. In cinemas July 23rd, we get 13 Minutes, Man Up, Selfless, The Gallows, which I've already seen and is boring as crap, and Mr. Holmes. I'm looking forward to that. Ian McKellen playing an aging Sherlock. I know, pretty cool. It's got to be better than Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Well, yes. We we enjoy that. It's made by the the guy who made, Bill Connor made um, Gods and Monsters. Yeah. So unlike... Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes Game of Shadows it won't be a highfalutin action film it'll be more introspective and about yeah. Holmes is coping with old age and how his deductive deductive facilities it's based on a book I've not read it yeah it is yeah. Um, but uh, yeah more about how as an old man he has to cope with still being the world's greatest detective but being an ageing greatest detective yeah we'll definitely definitely check it out but anyway it's a shame Richard wasn't here for that. Mm. I'm sure he would have loved it, but yep. uh, Dr. Well, Lenley, legend. He'll be here next time. Honorary crew member. Yes. That's all right. All right, you lot. Which one of you is Batman? I'm Batman. I'm Batman. No, I'm Batman. And so is my wife. That means I'm definitely Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hang on. Hang on. Let's say goodbye. Yeah, we need to discuss this. Okay. I'm Batman. Makes sense. Dave's Batman. Makes sense. You're Batman. <laughs> I'm Spartacus. <laughs> You've been listening to NCP. Thank you for being a part of our crew. If you would like to support the show, you can use the Amazon widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. If you have any feedback, please go to nerdculturepodcast.com forward slash contact us where you will find a list of the many different ways you can interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.